Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everyone to season three, episode three of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Market conditions for the year 2023 and a little bit of M&A outlook. And you know for both of those are gonna be a lot of numbers, a lot of trends, a lot of financial analysis. And for that, I'm gonna bring my partner to Walker Sinha behind the microphone. Get your popcorn ready, get your pad and pen ready, get a big pot of coffee ready. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. A very, very warm and hearty and 2023 welcome to my partner, DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, you want to say hello to everybody? Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for joining us and look forward to a productive podcast. Yeah, they're always productive here. It's a note-taking episode, right? And like I teased in the introduction, um, there have been a lot of things going on to start the new calendar year. <laughs> some of it picks up right where we left off at the end of 2022, and some of it is uh, literally hot off the presses as we're recording this episode today. First and foremost, we're going to talk through what I might call current market conditions. Current is a relative statement in today's world um, with, with rates kind of banging all over the place and, and projections for inflation forward-looking and and certainly rising cost of capital. So let me see if I can kind of set the table for our audience, um, and then we'll segue into some some discussion with DeWalker and some greater dialogue around a lot of the intricacies here. So current market conditions. As of uh, January 10th, when we're recording this podcast, the five-year treasury um, the five-year treasury and the federal funds rate are the, the two numbers that we reference um, most often here because those are more accurate harbingers of, of things to come in terms of overall lending rates. And our current five-year treasury rate is about 3.6%. Um, it's obviously risen dramatically in the last six months, as you're all well aware. Uh, point of comparison, it hasn't really been at this uh, height recently or in recent memory. And in fact, you would have to go all the way back to January of 2008 to see it uh, hovering around the 3% mark in and of itself. So again, about 3.6 today uh, and going back what, 14 years, uh, 15 years, excuse me, uh, to where it was uh, at the 3% mark. Similar context for federal funds rate, currently about 4.3%. And if we go back all the way to December of 2007, relative same 15-year timeframe, about four and a quarter at that point. So we're looking way in the rearview mirror uh, to find uh, five-year treasury and federal funds rates where they are, where they are right now. Um, that's 
much further back than I would consider the recent past and certainly uh, much further back than the pre-pandemic levels that we have referenced before. So now that we've got some frame of reference and a point of context, let's maybe pivot and, and have a discussion to Walker around not only current market conditions, but those market conditions relative to uh, overall M&A activity, trends, factors influencing structure, timeframes to close, activity levels, all that kind of good stuff. You want to kind of rip it from the top on what you're seeing on that? Uh, sure. I mean, as, again, as we look at these two indexes and we, you know, one would, you know, um, understand that, you know, these cost of capital issues are going to, as we talked in our previous podcast, um, are going to impact how structure happens. Um, what we've seen so far in Q1, and traditionally in Q1, you do see a, 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 a softening of activity. Uh, so I do want to state that, you know, year over year, you do see a softening of activity in Q1. There's a softening of activity in Q1 uh, in 2023 compared to 2022. Um, in 2022, we were coming back up probably one of the uh, uh, most forward years for M&A activity that we've seen in a very, very long time. So you know, understanding it's a softening quarter in Q1, I, I do think it's different in the fact that you know you see M&A activity be at a materially different level in 2023 compared to 2022 or the prior years. Meaning, um, you know, you just see a lot less uh, sell side opportunities out there, um, you know, than you had in the previous year, and then the buyers are looking at these deals. And starting to see, you know, with the increased cost of capital, how will they continue to offer the same level of valuation? So you have these competing forces that are happening. Uh, enough where we're seeing some firms, um, national DSOs, make cutbacks in their M&A uh, team across the country. Um, so that's, you know, the national DSOs or, you know, let's call it the top 50 DSOs, even re large regional players that are making some level of, of uh uh, changes in their team allocations or hiring freezes for M&A activity. Because I think everyone's looking at 2023 and saying, okay, this probably is going to be a flat year in activity. <clears throat> now, what does that mean for clients who are thinking of going to market in 2023? As I just said, I mean, there's not a lot of M&A uh, sell side activity from a seller's lens. So I do think you're kind of going back to that pendulum where you, know, you still have the same demand. You still have a desire to find the right partners. And if you have a good you know, uh, client that's looking to find the right partner because there's not a lot of activities out there, you, know, you can, can, can capitalize on the right structure. And I keep saying the right structure because as we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, you know, um, you know, transaction values are, are maturely high as far as what they are to multiple. Um, but you know, we're starting to focus on structure, understanding cost of capital is going to impact how different buyers look at uh, acquisition multiples uh, and, and pricing, you know, we are able to understand where the equity lives, how to structure those deals, and you know, still mitigating uh, the rising cost of capital and holding valuations, you know, for our client going into 2022 from 2020, uh, 2023 from 2022. So, as we go into the the rest of the year, you know, what I would say again, go to our audience member says if you're looking to find a partner, uh, or if you're looking to go to market in 2023, first ask yourself the question, I'm ready to find a partner. And if you're ready to find a partner, I think you know you can maximize in a situation that the seller pool is not as broad or diverse as it's been in the previous years. 
Um, and you, you can, you know, if you going through our marketing process, you can protect the value you've built and more importantly, find a structure that works for you. Um, and, th- and those structure issues are non-economical and economical in the business uh, as you're going into that. And one would argue if you go into and um, uh, have a capital event in 2023, you know, that could be exponential in both ways. You know, uh, you know, uh, the economists in the market are saying, hey, you know, we are going to see this little bearish market in 2023. So that's positive in the fact of having liquidity meant diversifying your investment portfolio. And then on the other side, you know, as far as uh, going into a partnership when there's not a lot of, you know, uh, sell side uh, transactions out there, you could kind of you know, structure the deal the way you want to. So we're seeing, you know, the activities on that side um, be very meaningful to our clients that are in market or going to market right now. Yeah, I think that's a really salient point that that I want to spend a second kind of hammering or, or driving home. Uh, you know, there are too many people. Well, first and foremost, I would say we're privileged, uh, fortunate, lucky, however you want to term it, that we really do get to work with some uh, people who built unbelievable businesses um, and 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 that value very very highly. I think too much of the market just assumes that because the cost of capital uh, is going up, rates are going up, that now is a bad time to enter um, the the marketed sales process. And I, I would say the exact opposite is the case. The transaction value uh, can very easily hold up if you're willing to be uh, slightly more flexible around what that transaction is. The second thing is, if you've built a great business, there will always be a buyer for it. That, that's, we know that. But the, the thing to keep in mind in this type of a context or in this market context is that if you've built a great business and there are fewer of them out there for sale, you get a lot more attention and and a lot more desire because the buy side has limited number of at bats. So this kind of goes back to supply and demand, right? And and I think that's something that all too often the herd mentality takes over. And and people sit there, they built great businesses and they say, well, I'm just going to delay my exit for another year or two years or something like that until lending rates come back down uh, and the activity level picks back up. Uh, you know, there could be some merit in that, but to wait that long and, and to think you're going to be uh, in in more of a, a process where there are a lot more businesses for sale and the buy side has the ability to interchange them, not be, you know, really focused on your business only. I, I think this is a great time of the year or great time of the market cycle to have built a great business and be one of the most attractive acquisition opportunities for a handful of prospective buyers. That's a that's an enviable position to be in, honestly. And I, I think it's it's something worth considering. Um you know, the, and as it relates to transaction structure, obviously, I think we've talked about on the podcast before, but we host exit planning sessions with uh, prospective clients to kind of understand where their business is on a limited financial analysis, um, you know, what their desires are around transactions, give them some guidance around multiples, talk through some low hanging fruit in terms of uh, practice or, or, or business cleanup, and then the overall exit strategy. And, and those days are 
immensely beneficial. We've got a, a handful of people coming in in the first couple of months of the year to, to go through some of that. So I think it'll be a lot of fun um, as it relates to their overall exit strategy and when that may unfold. So let's circle back here for a second as we're talking about activity trends and the factors that influence it. Uh, you know, let's take a look more specifically Q1 and, and maybe delving slightly into Q2 of 2023. Um, you know, overall pricing, uh, cost of capital as it impacts the, the structures that we brushed up against. And really, how do we want to think about that from a forward looking standpoint, Walker? Yeah. So I mean, as we kind of go into in, in a Q1, Q2, I, you know, from, from the market conditions right now, um, I think the Fed's going to continue to raise rates, at, you know, for the next at least 30 to 60 days. I think the uh, the jobs report came out in the last month. It's pretty strong. It's very good stuff and good indication of of the labor markets. Um, I think when you look at the underlying data in the labor markets for that came out, um, it shows that you know majority of the jobs added, um, I think uh, over 200,000. Came from small businesses, right? So I think you're going to see you're starting to see softening at the bigger companies. If anything, we're probably reading the newspaper that there's uh, um, you know layoffs or you know restructuring or hiring freezes happening uh, from a from a corporate lens. Uh, yet you're seeing a lot of small businesses continue to capitalize on the talent, you know, being able to pivot at a more rapid rate and continue to expand their labor force, right? So um, the other thing you've also seen in the uh, report from from last month. Is that you know last month was one of the lower months of wage increases, meaning, you know, of what we saw as far as uh, a median uh, wage improvement <clears throat> compared to previous months historically. So I think you're starting to see continuous strong labor market or decent labor market in the, there, and then on the other side you're starting to see uh, wage increases not be as material um, uh, compared to last year. I would say material compared to last year. Uh, last year in 2023, we saw significant wage increases month over month at some points. Um, so looking at those things, Fed's going to continue to raise the rates, uh, probably more uh, conservative level, not as aggressive, maybe not 75 basis points. Uh, my my assumption to be prior on 50 basis points is where we continue to hold for the next 30 to 60 days and kind of measure the change uh, over the next quarter. And that's going to impact uh, you know our plants that are going through uh, capital raise solutions, um, as, as And we've said that on our other calls. I mean, cost of capital is what the cost of capital is. I think what people need to understand is how do they make that capital work? Um, you know, that said, on a sell side for a lot of the larger DSOs, when they're trying to go upstream and transact in 2023, um, and the cost of capital is 300, 400 basis points higher, or maybe at some point later this year, it's four, four to 500 basis points higher, um, it's going to create some... Um, equity and balance sheet issues on the larger deal. So I think you're going to see companies uh, uh, hold valuations um, going into 2023 because the supply is lower and the demand still there. Uh, but I do think you're going to see some companies uh, just not make a acquisition decision you know, or make minimal acquisitions in 2023 because their leverage ratio is already so high that you're going to, you are going to see some companies Kind of uh, detract from their traditional uh, growth and acquisitions in 2023. Um, so I think you're going to see a, a little bit of those activities. Uh, but I think you know, for most of our clients that are on our podcast, I think you need to kind of think about again: Are you ready to find a partner? And if you are, you know, do the right steps to position yourself, you know, for 2023 event or future events. 
Um, and, and I will say there's a lot of capital available. And I think clients that in, you know decide to go in 2023 to market, I think they have significant uh, uh, leverage on being able to structure the deal they're looking for. And I keep focusing on structuring the deal they're looking for, because I think that's really gonna be the key theme for us as we go into 2023, structure over price. Um, in a, in the, you know, as in twenty twenty three, I completely agree with that. And you know, the other thing too for the people in the audience who are listening uh, to this podcast right now, our our January, February, and and even into late March calendar um, is uh, is filling up quickly. We we're going to be at a number of different. Um, industry events, trade shows, et cetera. And if any of you are interested in, in spending a little bit of time talking in person, um, I, uh, I'll be with John Paul and Mark Flock at Voices of Dentistry um, probably the week that this podcast uh, drops, actually. That's in Phoenix, Voices of Dentistry. The following week will be uh, at the Yankee Show up in Boston. Uh, and then the week after that, uh, Mark Flock and Kyle Webster will be back in Las Vegas for the AADGP. Uh, so, you know, in the next uh, in a handful of weeks coming up for those that are attending any of those shows, if you're curious about any of the topics we've talked about uh, and are going to be attending any of those industry events, by all means, um, do seek us out for that. You can always schedule a call with me or DeWalker uh, or a day session for that matter, too, if you're interested in digging a little bit deeper. So it's kind of a complicated subject and obviously it's a big decision. So you want to do your uh, your research and um, fact finding to the best of our collective ability on it. So as I mentioned, there's some, I teased this in the opening, there's some current events that we want to dig into a little bit uh, around this whole, what I would consider market conditions, and they do impact uh, potentially, at least the outlook for M&A overall. And that is um, a a recent, um, I'll call it an FTC uh, proposal, Federal Trade Commission proposal around the validity of non-compete agreements, restrictive covenants. This is something that we get questions about all the time uh, in all facets of our business. Uh, and it's something that um, uh, historically has has given the people building group practices some degree of protection, I would say, um, about the the group that they're building and and you know, uh, being able to maintain um, the structure of their associates and uh, minority partners relative to uh, the fear of having one of them set up a shop right across the street from one of your locations. So non-competes are different in different states in terms of their enforceability, but the FTC's recent proposal um, that, that hit the wire, I guess, last week um, is sending a lot of tremors through the marketplace. And I think that could potentially have some impact on transactions. Um, talk a little bit about equity plans and, you know, the way non-competes are enforceable maybe for a, uh, uh, an own, a minority owner, a part owner versus an employee. DeWalker, do you want to you know, maybe dig into that. We can talk a little bit about holdouts on associates that you've seen on transaction structures as well. This has uh, teeth in the M&A outlook. We can also talk about it, obviously, from the associate equity context. But you want to take the first cut at it? Sure. Um, so I will say, you know, if you guys don't have the link or the direct uh, FTC proposed link, please contact uh, Perrin or myself. 
I'm happy to send you the link so you can review it, understand it, um, and uh, see you know what the proposed ruling is. And, and by the way, no matter which side of the fence on this proposal you sit on, as far as having non-competes or not having non-competes, um, you know you can um, uh, you know publish your comments on it. And I think the F, I believe the F, please don't quote me. FTC is taking comments up till March 10th on this issue. So you definitely want to bring that to to the forefront. For I think it's one of the great things you know here is that you know everybody gets to voice their opinion here and on either side that they're at um, on the FTC ruling. And and as you go on it, you can obviously see a lot more commentary that is there. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I think the FTC proposed ruling on a on a ban on non competes is going to have a material impact on uh, if, if it is if it does stay if it's enforced and not challenged in the legal process, um, you know, as uh, uh, and does uphold all the way through its due legal process at some point, um, it, it will have material impact on uh, transaction values and um, you know, transaction structures. Let me rephrase that uh, uh, more importantly. Um, meaning that, you know, if, if traditionally when we have a party, when we're taking a client to market, you know, kind of talking about some of the pitfalls and transactions that we work with our clients on, is, um, you know, are your associates, you know, with employment agreements, are they W-2 employees? And a lot of detailed issues that we work through with our clients as they're going to market and prepping for a, you know, six-month outlook to a 24, 36-month outlook and a go-to-market strategy. But one of the things have been, it's okay if we, you know, uh, can we look at an employment agreement? And one of the underlying reasons of having that employment agreement, you know, is going to be, you know, is there a non-compete in place if it's enforceable? Uh, or some kind of mechanism to protect the company and the transition of the goodwill. Um, and you know, we have seen in, in many instances, um, and I think it's very common, and I, I would like to talk about it and bring it to the forefront, because these are a lot of the issues that we are working on uh, with people that are doing the um, uh, exit planning session with us and or on our consulting side is to understand you know, what associate holdouts are. So let's let's talk about what a social holdouts are. Um, and first of all, I do want people um, that are associates. We do do a lot of associate equity. We'll talk about this. To, uh, we're big proponents at Polaris to, you know, ensure good performing associate doctors have a equity position in the business um, if they understand what that means to themselves and if they understand what that means to contribute to the greater good of the company. So we're first of all as a as a disclosure disclaimer. Um, a statement ahead, all for it. I, I believe it should be a win-win when people have been with you in the journey for a long time. Um, that said, you know what we do experience a lot, a lot of times in transaction deals is that you will have somebody that has had an employment agreement for six months, five years, and you know there's a transaction event that's happening, and that you know one or multiple associates, usually it's one, uh, so we call it an associate holdout. Uh, is looking and looking at the transaction and saying, okay, you know, you know, in order for me to renew my contract or assign my contract or any of these things or sign a new employment agreement, here's the following economic benefit or non-economic benefit I need, right? So it becomes we call it an associate uh, a holdout because you know uh, having a, a continuity of doctors transition becomes very meaningful and impactful in a transaction, um, you know, so. You know, with with the lack of non-competes being proposed in the future, that's going to become more impactful, um, and that is going to get 
uh, buyers to understand, okay, what are the risks in the deal, knowing that we can't enforce non-competes, we, there's the enforceability of non-competes may not be there. Uh, now, you know, one could look at California, which doesn't have non-competes and associates, and look at it as a case study and say, what is the, you know, impact on companies when companies are being acquired in, sta- in states like California? And you could make an argument either way. And there's probably significant examples of where goodwill has been destroyed, and there's probably significant examples where goodwill has not been destroyed, right? So, and, and, um, and those are things that people need to kind of evaluate um, uh, in, in that aspect. Um, that said, I, I do believe buyers looking at acquiring businesses and looking at associate agreements, if this ruling is to be implemented in its full force, uh, will have to take a pause, not that they're not move forward with the transaction, will have to take a pause, will have to digest you know, what the lack of non-competes mean uh, for the associates um, you know, out there. So you know, that said, you know, I think, you know, as, as you know, many of you guys that have followed us here the, uh, uh, at Polaris or at previous ventures, uh, you guys have heard how passionate we are about associate partnerships, associate equity, uh, where we think it's very meaningful to the doctor. And you know, uh, Perrin, I can tell you from from last you know few days, you know, our phones have been busy, very busy, with people that you know, even if they're not looking to go to market for five years, asking the question. You know what is associate equity? What does associate partnership looks like? Um, so, and then in our sell side process, we're actively discussing that with our clients and how to create uh, strategies in our sell side process to make sure those doctors are locked into um, a an equity event. Um, and you know, you know, as you have partners in an equity event, um, as of, as it stands today, and based on the ruling I've read so far, proposed ruling I've read so far. You know, if you have a partner uh, that's in the business, um, you know that tends to have a little more teeth into that relationship uh, versus, you know, based on the ruling, um, if they do bad non-competes for employees and what that means, right? So, um, I, I, you know, I would highly encourage any of our audience members that are listening um, to, you know, connect with uh, either Parent URI or even Mark Flock, who leads our uh, um, uh, partnership strategies for. For groups, and you know, understand what that means for their business, and how we can help them protect their business uh, as we think about this potential FTC ruling. And then, more importantly, on the sell side, you know, how is this going to impact you know, the people that are looking at these transactions sometime in 2023, 2024, 2025? And as you guys have um, heard us, you know, when we talked about capital reserves on our in a podcast series for banking and looking at it in 2023, you know, we were talking about building capital reserves of minimum three months and ideally six months to a year. And I will say the same thing here today. I think it's it's, it's better to be prepared than to react to it. Um, and and I would highly encourage start looking and saying, okay, you know, who are the meaningful team members that uh, uh, if they left our company, that it would be an impact to the company. And, and how can we create an equity plan for them? That's a win-win, right? And you really want it to be a win-win for team members um, to, to become, you know, um, uh, uh, partners in the company. So um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I, uh, again, let me maybe uh, put a bow on it and hammer a couple of points home um, for, for everyone in the audience. Um, one, non-competes and any restrictive covenants are much more enforceable 
uh, and outright enforceable for an owner in the company versus an employee in the company. So that's a, a significant uh, separation when we're talking in this case about associates or executives or somebody like that, that that does play a critical role in the way the business is constituted presently. And certainly uh, from a go forward standpoint, a buyer is buying the continuity of the business and specifically the continuity of patient care and cash flow. So we wanna make sure that we um, lock up our key people. and. When it comes to non-competes and, and their enforceability, they are much more enforceable uh, for owners in the business versus employees in the business. And that's, that's one of the pivotal pieces that we try to solve for in our associate equity and our executive equity. The second piece uh, is the, uh, that the transaction and the uh, continuity with the, new, with the buyer and the new company. And obviously, most operating agreements between partners have some level of a continuity provision agreeing to work post-sale for the buyer of the business for a minimum of two years or something to that effect. So that is usually part of most operating agreements um, that bind all the owners, be they minority or majority, founder or otherwise, uh, on a go-forward look in, in terms of working for the buyer of the business uh, post, uh, post-transaction. So, Equity programs are truly mission critical. We feel like they're mission critical, period. But in this context, they really solve an unknown for both the present owner, the founder of the business, as well as the buyer at the point of the deal table. And if you take that unknown out of the equation, you have a lot more confidence in the transaction and and less uh, chasing the tail at the end uh, and spending money um, unnecessarily. So I'm going to just go ahead and toot our own horn for a quick second here as if I need to do this for our audience. But one of the beauties of Polaris is that we are a consulting company as well as a sell-side advisory company. Uh, most of our competitors in the space, uh, frankly, about all but all of them, uh, are either a consulting company that might do some level of equity plans but no transactions, or they're sell-side advisory firms that have nothing to do with consulting, let alone uh, equity plans. We do both. And this is really one of the, the beautiful insights that we can give a prospective client in trying to solve for some of those uh, loose ends and unknowns in terms of what the best methodology course of action uh, is for the founder relative to their time frame. So if we go back to what DeWalker said, at the start of his answer, which is that our phone's been blowing up in the last 72 hours or whatever it's been in our email as well, for that matter, this is exactly the context of it. Okay. So for those in the audience that have already reached out, kudos to you. Um, you know, dialogue's been great uh, and been pretty fast paced. For those that the light bulb hadn't quite gone off yet, it needs to, because if you're building a group practice, and you're okay with turning over associates and key people, then you know keep it small and keep it all, as we like to say in terms of equity. But if you're building a, a group practice and you want to stabilize it and have minority partners, you've got to create some level of uh, some pathway to partnership, as we like to say, uh, predominantly for your associates, possibly for your executives as well. And the last thing I would say is, if you've built a successful group practice 
and the intent is to transact it either in 2023 or shortly thereafter, 24, 25, you have enough time to create some type of an of a minority equity plan. What that plan looks like is probably a one-on-one level discussion. There are a lot of different options to help solve for that piece of the unknown, but you absolutely positively have to consider it relative to this Federal Trade Commission proposal. Um, who knows if it goes through or not, but it's out there right now and, and it's going to, to make an impact in our world. So this is kind of a pivotal podcast in, in a lot of different ways. And we're not even, what, two weeks into the new calendar year yet. So a lot of changes, a lot of impact, sell side, as well as, you know, normal growth cycle, but, but something for you to really put your thinking cap on um, and, and consider what's going to be the, the best solution. And obviously, once again, we can help you either way. So I think probably, DeWalker, that puts a bow on it. Do we leave anything undone or any last uh, words of wisdom from you before we wrap up the show today? No, I th- again, I think if you know anybody in the audience member has questions around this FTC ruling, obviously connect with your counsel. Um, you know, we're happy to refer counsels. Uh, we're happy to send you the link. Um, but more importantly, you know, if as you're doing planning for 2023 to 2024, if you're going to think about growth strategy or a transactional event or a capital event, any any type, you know, you know, definitely you know schedule with us a discovery day for. Uh, you know, the growth strategy side or exit planning session for the uh, sell side. Yep. Well done. Um, this was a, a fast paced episode for sure. And I think, you know, probably our, uh, uh, probably our audience uh, gathered that we did a, a halfway decent amount of show prep or maybe more than we usually do on, on the show. We tend to get on here and give it some thought, have a framework to talk about and then just shoot from the hip. But this was this is one where we actually uh, put some thought into it. And hopefully with that, we gave you all a number of things to think about. Uh, if you do have questions, uh, you can reach out to either one of us directly. You can always reach me uh, via email at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And DeWalker, of course, is DeWalker at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. That's D-I-W-A-K-A-R. We're always happy to um, trade emails, set up a call, talk through things, probably talk to 10 to 12 um, uh, friends of the show on a, on a weekly basis. So don't be shy about reaching out. Obviously, we really appreciate all of you uh, being in the audience. Thank you so much for referring the show uh, to many of your colleagues. There have been a a number of people uh, proactively sharing our podcast, and we can see that through a lot of the downloads. We blew past 30,000 total downloads um, lifetime uh, right before the close of the calendar year, and our goal is to be at 100,000 total downloads by the end of this year. And that's all because of the generosity and the faith and trust that y'all put in us. And, and we're truly grateful for that. So thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We will see you on the next episode.